What's up everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. My name is Matt and thanks for joining us today. I am excited to have on the show again, CEO of TG Therapeutics, Mike Weiss. Mike, thanks a lot for coming back on the show. Thanks Matt, appreciate it. Good to see you. Likewise, and I'm glad we got to do this. And for those who aren't familiar, um, TG Therapeutics is a B-cell focused company. And uh, so far they've really focused on developing therapeutics for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, cancers, and they also have some great data in MS. But I think the uh, exciting thing I wanted to talk to you about, Mike, is really get into more of the details on some of the things we heard in the Q2 report that you guys presented recently. And, you know, check out that. There's a lot of good stuff that the company shared, a lot of updates and things like that. And we're not going to repeat all of that to, to make it kind of boring, but I think some of the interesting things that came up, we could get into more details for. So, yeah, thanks again for being on the show, and I look forward to, to kind of getting into it. Absolutely. So the, the way that I kind of took the, the Q2 earnings report is that really 2021 for TG is kind of laying the groundwork commercially um, with the indications that are approved today so that really as we get into 2022 and we get more approvals, we're really gonna be well positioned to really ramp up sales. And the reason for this is the CLL indication hopefully is approved in the earlier part of the year, but there's been such a great opportunity now for your sales team to interact with uh, physicians to get into those accounts already that the, the positioning is gonna be great to really execute. Um, you know, Would you say that that's accurate? Would you add anything else to that? Yeah, it's completely accurate. What I would add is, so, you know, if you think about the entire organization and what's going on right now, you know, we've always viewed marginal follicular as kind of a pilot program for CLL and, and even furthermore for, for MS. So you started to talk about the, the sales teams and the, what I would describe maybe as the field teams that are out there um, interfacing, but I'll, I'll go and I'll get to that in one second. But, you know, if we go backwards and we just say, look, you know, we have a clinical operations team. They've got to make sure that they're operating at you know full full potential. Make sure that the kinks are all out. Mm. Identify any issues. So it's great to be able to do that when you're dealing with something like a marginal follicular where the patient flow isn't that tremendous, right? So so that's really a nice way to get started. Get the clinical operations uh, team working through through the kinks, and then and then yes, we have the uh, the field teams, right? And you know, the field teams, there's not just, there's a sales team, there's, we have a nursing team, we have two sets of, uh, you know, uh, medical liaisons, so MSLs, and we have RMLs and HSMLs. Um, and so, you know, getting the kinks out, who's, who's, who's making the approach? How are they making the approach? When do they hand it off to the second person? And how do they bring in, you know, KOLs or top people from the company to, to make uh, you know, different, whether it's an educational presentation or a promotional presentation. Uh, so getting all of that work through in a pilot way with Mars and Flickler has been phenomenal. And then, again, most importantly is what you described, of course, which is getting in there and actually meeting with doctors and nurses and just making sure that they're aware of, of the Mars and Flickler approval. Again, you're, you know, Mars and Flickler, if, if you imagine that there's uh, 80% of these patients are treated in the community, 20% are treated in academic centers. And then, you know, there, there is probably up to 8,000 uh, that are seeking a new treatment every year, but they're gonna be divided across a pretty large swath of the country, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about, um, you know, maybe some of these doctors see two or three a year, 
right? So patient walks in, it's not like we, we meet with them and the next day they have a, a, a ton of patients sitting there for them to treat. This is not breast cancer, this is not colon cancer. So, you know, I think it's, it's super important to get in there, uh, make the introductions. And, uh, and that's, again, for us, that's the key for, for successful CLL. So mm-hmm. getting all the kinks out of the systems and making the introductions and, you know, most of these people know the docs, mm-hmm. uh, but it's introducing TG, it's introducing Uconic, it's getting as many of them to try it as possible. Yeah. Um, but again, as much as some people may want to try it, if they don't see a patient in the next six months, yeah. it's hard for them to try it. So I think we're yeah. going to get as many as we can to try it. Uh, and I think they're doing a good job in getting out there. But yeah, it's a, it was a great year. It, it is a great year and it will continue to be. And as you mentioned, the goal is to have uh, CLL approved by the mm-hmm. PDUFA date, which is March 25th. Uh, assuming that happens, we have you know, a little over six months mm-hmm. uh, remaining till we get there, maybe seven months. Uh, so we still have a lot of time to get in front of physicians, explain the Uconic value proposition, and then get out there with the U2 story. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's aligned with, with how I'm uh, taking everything, and it totally makes sense. And I think investors can sometimes not appreciate all the work that does go into commercially uh, launching something, getting all of these different teams organized, and, and figuring out how to proceed and how to best target, especially uh, during COVID, which, you know, if anybody's in sales, it's, uh, it's very difficult to get in front of customers, especially, you know, doctors, doctor's offices, these places are very um, restricted, I would say, and they're probably the ones that require a lot more testing and things like that before they can get in front of of people. So I think to kind of transition into the the interactions that any of the, the teams have had, have any of the salespeople, they've been able to get in front of doctors, right? Yeah, no, they're, they're definitely engaging with the clinicians, they're engaging with the nurses. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's certainly not as easy as they've had it maybe in past uh, lives in different companies where in the pre-COVID world. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I personally was, was kind of excited about launching in COVID. I, 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 I like these Zoom interactions. I'm completely comfortable uh, with it. I could see your face. I could see your body language. We could have a nice conversation. Uh, but unfortunately, it appears from what I'm hearing back from the teams is, is that we came in a little bit on the late end of, of COVID where most people were a little bit of sick of Zoom, uh, but yet still not prepared for live interactions. There was a, there was a window, I'd say, in the mm-hmm. April-May timeframe where we had a, a really nice uh, grouping of live interactions and we set up dinner meetings and we set them up for 20 and 40 people came and people were really oh. excited to I don't, I don't know if they were excited to hear about Uconic. I, I hope that's what they were coming for. Sure. But they were just excited to, to get out for sure. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, once we get, you know, unfortunately now this, the, the Delta variant has, has come around and it's definitely uh, putting some some stress on um, the, the interactions again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that too shall pass. Uh, you know, fingers crossed it'll be uh, behind us by the time we launch into CLL. Mm-hmm. Uh, and further... I have a high level of confidence will be behind us by the time we launch into MS. But in the meantime, uh, the teams are getting uh, uh, engagements with the physicians and the nurses, mm-hmm. and they just, you know, it's, it's a grind, right? They just got to grind it out. And that's what, it's a great part of having a pilot year like this. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, expectations should be low. We're low for, for Marzona follicular. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're not... We're not, we're not behind, in my opinion. We're doing, doing well. We're getting, again, 
it's a way for us to really get ahead for that CLL launch. Yeah, definitely. So, so given that there has been some interactions, I think on the call we heard that there have been refills already, which I think is, is bodes very well. Um, is it too early to ask about things like patient feedback or, I mean, maybe doctor feedback in the real world or, I mean, and I know we're, we're super early, right? But do you have anything to share with something like that? Yeah, it, it is, it is a bit early, but I would say getting patient feedback is, is a bit of a challenge. Um, just generally, we don't mm -hmm. really have direct interactions with the patients. Yeah. Uh, so it is hard to get their direct feedback. Having said that, physician and nurse uh, feedback is possible and I've, I've engaged and asked the teams to, to get back to me and find out, you know, try to do some sort of surveying, you know, the physicians who have used it, let's get some feedback, let's understand, it. are there any issues, are there concerns? Um, I mean, most people, for the most part, will say nice things. I mean, look, we know from our clinical trials that give or take 80 to 85% of the folks are going to have a good experience. Mm -hmm. So give or take 15 to 20% are not. We, we know that by, by design. Uh, what we, you know, what occurred in, in the clinical trials, uh, let's let's hope that that's holding up, right? That's you know that's the expectation is that uh, most the vast majority of folks are going to have a good uh, experience on um, Uconic, uh, and that's again very different than what folks have experienced with with prior PI3Ks, where mm -hmm. almost half the patients had poor interactions or more. So, uh, I, I think it's important for us to to get the actual feedback. Uh, our, our base assumption is not everyone's going to be happy, but most mm -hmm. most people will be happy, and, and I'd like to, to hear more and yeah. and hear what people are saying. And, and people, you know, even in our clinical trials, we, we were able to get a lot more feedback in the clinical trials. And we also, you know, you, you hear people, you know, these are great physicians, right? Mm -hmm. These are people who are used to dealing with poison yeah. on a regular basis. So when they get a drug like this, which is generally well-tolerated, mm -hmm that sometimes has X or Y issue, uh, they're usually really well able to manage it as long as they know what to expect. Mm -hmm. uh, and then some of them are pretty creative and, and they give us ideas on, on, on the ways in which they've taken care of the side effects so that they don't have to worry about it. Um, mm -hmm. So and that all filters back into uh, to things we could then potentially add to the label. But all that feedback is important, positive, negative. Um, but we don't have it yet. Like I said, my, my expectation is that most people are going to have a good experience, but we need to we need to do some work on that. Yeah, and that's totally fair, I think. Um, so then, yeah, so the report was uh, 1.5 million in Q2 of sales, and I think you know the the other thing that we heard from your team is that 35% of the drug was given away for free, and so I think the 1.5 million is kind of a discount to the amount of actual interest there was in taking the drug, but. You guys are trying to bridge that gap um, by giving away some product for free. I don't know if investors totally uh, understood exactly the rationale behind that, and I wondered if maybe you could speak to this. We And the reason for this is because you also mentioned that there was really broad payer support. And I think the answer is co-pays, but if you could elaborate a little more on that, that might be helpful. Yeah, Matt, you're, you're on it. So, But that has been a point of, of confusion for a lot of folks, and I did hear some, some people asking about that. So. Yeah, so I think we're at like 90% plus in terms of reimbursement coverage. So coverage is not an issue. The issue is that um, for patients who are on uh, Medicare, they're responsible essentially for 5% of the co total cost of the drug, right? So if they can't afford that 5%, so the 95% is part of what we said was the coverage part, right? So 
everyone's covered for the 95% is the 5% that that's not covered. Now, in, if you have a, if you're on private pay insurance client, uh, or patient, uh, companies are permitted to provide copay support directly to the patient. So, so in that setting, if you have private insurance, the company can give you, uh, basically support that 5%. If you're a Medicare patient by law, the companies are not allowed to help you with that 5%. So the only way to, to get coverage for that 5%, if you cannot afford it is through charitable, um, organizations. And there are charities that are set up to pay those, to, to support those co-pays. Now, our understanding is that uh, in follicular and marginal zone, there's not a lot of, of those charities available for these folks. Mm. So in essence, if you can't afford the 5%, our choice is to say, sorry, you cannot have Uconic, or we just give it to you for free. Right. And we've taken the position that if you can't afford it, we're gonna give it to you for free. Uh, for us, again, the numbers in marginal follicular, certainly in the early phases, are never going to be enough to make a material impact on our, our balance sheet and our on our net burn, right? right? So we might as well, one, it's a great thing to be able to do, so I'm yeah. very happy to be able to do it on a, on a human basis, um, but um, it's also good for business, right? That patient goes on to Uconic, they don't go on to some other drug, mm -hmm. the physician gets experience with, you, with Uconic, so in a situation where they otherwise might not get to use it again for, again, if they come in three patients a year and they come in every four months, you know, it could be a while before they get that, that, that experience. We want them to touch the drug. We want yeah. them to interact with patients on the drug and their nursing team. So, so all around, it's a good thing, but it's, it was confusing. So it's really, the coverage is, is, is great. Our, mm -hmm. our, our payer team has done a fantastic job in making sure that we've got the coverage acquired uh, for Uconic, uh, it's all about you know copay support that five percent that folks can't afford. If they can't afford it, we do give it to them free. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I think it's 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 good for us. Um, I think it's good for the reputation of TG. So mm -hmm. we're happy to provide it. Yeah. And it's great from again, let the doctor use the drug, let him experience yeah. it. Yeah, and and especially in I, and I hate to harp on this, but like COVID, it's not easy to get in front of doctors. So like when there is an opportunity to to move forward with something like this, I think seizing it so that you know in the next year or so, uh, this is going to be somebody who's seen uh, a, a Uconic already. It's going to bode very well for future patients that they give. But okay, so that's the that's the disconnect that I think there may have been some confusion if they can't cover the five percent and there's no charity available, uh, they're either not gonna get the drug or TG, you have to give the drug to them for free. The 100%, exactly. right, okay. Yeah, right. 100%, exactly. That's helpful. Yeah. And to your point, just, yeah, and since I'll just reiterate the point that 80% of these physicians are the same physicians that will treat CLL patients, and CLL patients will come in to, to those practices more like once a month versus every four months, or maybe even more than that, depending on the practice and the position. So. Yeah, it, it's. We think it's uh, it's good all around for everybody. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a, an absolute no brainer to to do something like that. And and yeah, I mean, it's just it's setting up very well for for a great um, future development and ramp up. Um, yeah. 
So, oh, and also the one thing I wanted to, to clarify, and this seems like it's because this patient population happens to be covered by Medicare more so than private insurers, right? But you don't, ex do you expect that to also be true for CLL or that'll be different? So both, um, well, all three, follicular marzone and CLL are typically diseases of older folks. Sure. Um, I don't want to say the elderly because I think I'm almost at the age in which I'll, I'll, I'll hit the average age of, of, a, of one of those patients. So I, sure. I'll just say older, sure. older folks, not elderly. Um, uh, so, but the difference is that in CLL, there appears to be a lot more support in the, um, in the charities for, okay. for the base. So there's, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, there's just a lot more, I think it's a bigger disease area. There's a lot more, funding available uh, for the copay support. So we, we don't expect to see a similar level of, uh, of people who need um, us to provide the free goods versus the copay support that will pay the 5%. Okay. And okay. then just to further on that point, for MS, uh, a little bit different story because it's an IV. So mm -hmm. uh, typically those are fully covered uh, without copay uh, oh. issues. Nice. All right. That's a... Uh... That's good to know. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's pretty cool. Um, okay, and then, yeah, just to touch on the CLL opportunity, since we're kind of talking about it, you know, I think you guys guided this around 8,000 patients in follicular and marginal zone, and then in CLL, we're looking at around thirty to 40,000 patients per year that could be seeking a treatment. Is that accurate? Well, it's it's accurate that that's our estimates. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> that, that's what is, I, I meant. <laughs> It is hard to, uh, to to get those numbers exactly, but yeah, that's what we think. Okay. Uh, there's about 8,000 in the follicular margin zone. You know, these days, you know, with COVID, with folks delaying coming back in for treatment, it could be lower uh, than that, uh, and it could be lower than CLL as well. But sure. yeah, we think give or take 8,000 and give or take 30 to 40,000 is, is probably the right numbers or ballpark to be in for, uh, for thinking about the total market size of new patients seeking treatments. Okay. And I just want to make the point that the CLL, the, the jump to CLL is, is a lot more than what we're dealing with right now. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, almost, it's four to five X at, at a minimum. Yeah. Okay. So then just to touch briefly on the, the guidance that your team provided for um, the future. For 2022, we're, expect, or we're hoping for 50 to 75 million in sales. And I assume that's going to be still mostly marginal zone and follicular with some CLL and probably like no MS. Uh, I'm just kind of guessing that. And then 2025, expecting 1 billion in sales split, potentially 50-50 MS in oncology. Um, would you say those are conservative, aggressive target or estimates? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, 2022 is, is hard to, to predict interestingly, right? Because um, the... Uh, it's not, not hard to predict. I, I think we're I think we're being relatively conservative for 2022. So okay. let's start there. But as you mentioned, you know, MS uh, won't come online um, until assuming we get the approval on time. We'll have maybe two months of sales. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be a major contributor to to the revenues. Um, marginal follicular. Um, you know, if we're if we're continuing to give away a third to forty percent of all drug. You know, we'll see how much that can really contribute, yeah. and then it's then it's we're relying on you know CLL, which 
again, we're going to launch in April, mm -hmm. uh, essentially, right? Maybe, I mean, really, the launch starts about May 1st, right? If we get the approval mm -hmm. on time, on the 25th of March, it's going to take a few weeks to get into the channel. Everything mm -hmm. sort of takes a little bit longer. So we've got eight months of selling. You know, the first months will be less than the the, the, the out months. So net net, I mean we're 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 thinking that the you know probably the largest contribution is from the from CLL, mm -hmm. um, with again some reasonable contribution from marginal follicular and it's pretty modest. Okay. So I, again, I think I think we have ways in which 2022 could be you know again if if the CLL launch goes much better than mm -hmm. than predicted and we try to be very conservative about mm -hmm. about that launch, uh, then yeah then those numbers are conservative. Um, if there's any delay in uh, sure. in approval, you know that changes everything. COVID, right? All yeah. these are all these are contingent upon we get the approval on March 25th, and then you know we get the approval on time for for MS um, for 2025. Yeah, we're excited about 25. We we we're seeing you know once we get our our, our footing right, we're looking at you know again if. 2025, just to be clear, is not not even close to what we think is peak, right? 2025 mm -hmm. is three years in. Peak is probably six to eight years mm -hmm. or more. I mean, for MS, it could be more for sure, mm -hmm. right? Because with MS, you have a you have a tremendous compounding effect. And what I mean by compounding effect is that you in year one, if you put 100 patients on, and in year two, you put 100 patients on, you should be treating almost 200 patients in year two. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in year three, if you only, if you, again, if there's no growth in the number of patients coming on, you're still growing because the patients aren't coming off. There's a long duration oh. of therapy for MS, a very long duration of therapy. So every year you go out, even if there's zero growth. So what you can imagine is let's assume that our, our share of new patients peaks in 26 or 27, mm -hmm. it'll be three to five years until actual peak sales will be achieved. Okay. Right, because they're on it for so long. Because they're on it for so long, so you get that compounding through that period, even if the, the growth of, of new patients starts. So, you know, our expectation is, look, we get on our way to 2025, we're going to be driving as hard as we can to get as many patients on as we can. But, you know, we're, we, you know, from, uh, from an MSI, we are third to market, mm -hmm. but we're watching carefully, you know, what's going on with, with Casimta. Mm -hmm. You know, in their, in their fourth full quarter of sales, uh, they said that they're getting about a 10% new patient capture rate of all patients going on to MS treatments. Mm. So let's work those numbers backwards to the best that we can, which is we think there's about 100,000 patients seeking a new treatment for MS every year. Mm. So if they're capturing 10%, and it's the fourth quarter, so they're they're probably putting on somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 patients in their fourth full quarter of sales, right? Mm -hmm. So if they weren't to grow at all from that 10%, the following year they'd put on around eight to 10,000 patients. Yeah, it's pretty pretty yeah. good. So and that's only in you know, and the expectations they will grow, and and the CD20 market is growing, right? Yeah. So. You know, one of the assumptions that that we we've always had is like that CD20s will be about forty percent of the market. Hmm. 
So this last quarter, Roche reported, I believe, a 36 to 38 percent share of the market, okay. and Casimta reported about a 10 percent share of the market. So now we're looking at not 40 percent, but 46 percent to 48 percent of all MS treatment. You of mean? all MS yeah. treatment starts. So it is plausible <laughs> that you know we are underestimating how many patients will actually be going on CD20s. Because we're kind of capping in our in our modeling for the moment, and and our guidance for 2025 is based on basically we're sharing with them. Mm -hmm. There's 40,000 new patients that start CD20 every year, mm -hmm. and it's going to be shared in some proportion between the three drugs. Mm -hmm. That may not be exactly accurate. And again, the first yeah. first information we have right now is, is it's not anymore the way we should be thinking about it. But what goes into our 25 yeah. from that standpoint, we think is is pretty conservative. It's also conservative in terms of uh, percentage of that 40 percent, mm -hmm. right? So we're not yeah. saying we're going to have a third of that on day one, yeah. right? We're, our expectations are for you know a small percentage in the first year, growing each percentage uh, per year, and we do think at some point, probably closer to P, that we're we're looking at about a share, an equal share of the new patient starts. Mm -hmm. Now, you know. Roche will continue to have a, a pretty large advantage because they've got that installed base that's compounding every year. Yeah. So we're competing for every new patient start. There's a point in time, you know, 10 years or 12 years from now where, you know, you could start to see, you know, our share of the total CD20 market growing closer to some yeah. rational, you know, reasonable proportionate share. But at yeah. the, in the early years, and particularly in 2025, if, if yeah. 2025 is what we think is could be 10 billion in in sales for uh, CD20s, we could still be a small percentage of that yeah. because you've got another three years of of Ocrevus building their base. You got Casimta mm -hmm. building their base. Our base is really just beginning. Yeah. Right. Our base really starts to can look like a proper share probably in the 28 29 time frame. Mm -hmm. The good news is these are biologics, and these are you know the the patents are great. And our expectation is we, we should have more patents, particularly around manufacturing, that will take us out much further than okay. the composition that, that currently exists. But mm -hmm. even if we were limited to the composition patents and the exclusivity that's provided to biologics, it is still uh, not without challenges mm -hmm. to bring biosimilars to market uh, in a reasonable time frame. And, and anyone who models that this will end on the day the patent expires uh, like a small, like a small molecule, uh, I think is sorely mistaken. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's something that I didn't really think about, but um, definitely that's something that should be considered when when kind of modeling this out when we're talking, you know, whatever ten ten years or so. Very interesting. So yeah, I think in in the remarks from the earnings report, uh, MS opportunities like ten to fifteen billion. And yeah, it's uh, when I was listening to the call and I heard somebody bring up the Casimta, Casimta uh, growth, it's, uh, it's interesting that they saw such a big growth kind of quarter over quarter. Um, so in terms of like peak market share, and I know these things are kind of tough, but do you guys have an estimate on how much uh, of that market share of the 10 to 15 billion you, you hope to achieve at like the peak? Yeah, again, it's, it's a little bit of a function of the uh, the percentage of new patients and time, right for right. accumulation. Um, so I, I don't think we're we're making any predictions. But again, I okay. think it's 
you know, at some steady state again, and it, it, it does definitely depend on how sticky the patients. I mean, if patients on Ocrevitz or CD20s for 10 years, yeah, you know, our percentage will be lower. Yeah. If, if it turns out that, you know, it's three years instead of five or seven or eight, mm -hmm. uh, then, then the new patient starts will at some point be equivalent to the total market share that you have, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we have eight yeah. years in a row that we take a third of, of new patient starts, my guess is we'll be pretty close to a third of that 10 to 15, okay. right? Yeah. If, if the, the, the duration on treatment is, is longer, my guess is that the, the 10 to 15 will be low though. The longer that duration of therapy goes, mm -hmm. uh, that 10 to 15 uh, could end up being conservative in like the 28, 29 timeframe, right? right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, okay. our, our hope and expectation is that, you know, once we get to a, a, a strong and, you know, position in the marketplace, that we don't see any reason why we won't be uh, reasonably close to, to equal share mm -hmm. of new patient starts. I mean, I think the product profile supports it. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, I think everything we're thinking about around it should support it. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing, again, you know, all things being equal, they're, they are bigger companies than us. And so right. one wants to take some sort of a discount and say, we're not going to get fully equal share. It's okay. I mean, if, if at the end of the day, we end up with 20 to 25% of 10 to 15 billion, which may actually end up being higher than that. Yeah. It's going to be a great outcome for everybody yeah. for sure. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we excel and, and we're able to really get a full equal share of new patient starts for a reasonably long period of time, uh, at some point we should have some sort of closer to equal share of, of those revenues, mm -hmm. but it's, again, it's a long-term, yeah. th this is a long-term, there's going to be a lot of revenues to be had along the way, a lot of opportunities for, for success. And again, even if we're, even if we're only 20 to 25% of that 10 or 15 or more, uh, I think we're going to have a happy outcome for, for all our shareholders. Anyone, anyone who's mm -hmm. potentially thinking about buying today, all of those outcomes are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, just to touch on this briefly, you know, I, I don't believe you guys have given any guidance in terms of ablatuximab pricing. Is that right? Um, so we've given a little bit of guidance, not okay. a, not a ton. I'll give you what we what we've sort of said to date okay. between CLL and MS. Um, we are anticipating having separate pricing for for the two indications. Uh, with CLL, all we've said is, you know, there are a number of uh, CD20 and CD20-like approved agents now. So you've got rituxin mm -hmm. in, in CLL and in, in B-cell malignancies ger generally. You have um, the, the two CD20s by Roche, you have rituxin and obinutuzumab. Mm -hmm. uh, they're priced, I think, 55 to slash 65, 70-ish for six months course of therapy. Okay, I think so. Yeah. Uh, when when ofatumumab, which is casimta, was competing in CLL and, and available, uh, they were priced about 120,000. And um, there was a new drug approved, a CD19, but same general concept, a naked CD20 antibody mm -hmm. uh, by Morphosis. Uh, and I believe they're, they're between 170 and 190 okay. per year. So I think we have a lot of price flexibility mm -hmm. to identify where we see the value that Ubaltoximab brings to the table and price it accordingly. Mm -hmm. uh, don't, we're not bound to try to compete with rituxin and, and obinutuzumab. Right. Rituxin, you know, is, is has been historically low, but it's it's 
you know, they, they've done quite well. I don't think anyone is unhappy. Yeah. Uh, no. Obinutuzumab was priced uh, to try to convert as many people from rituxan to obinutuzumab before rituxan went into a biosimilar zone. Uh, and so I think they had a pricing strategy associated with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, 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 the other folks that have come to the market in more of a free, free market and value-based pricing uh, have been, you know, certainly much, much higher. So mm -hmm. I think we have a lot of room to figure out the right price um, for Rituximab and CL, but I don't think we're, we're focused on pricing it to compete with price with, uh, with Obinutuzumab and, and Rituxan. I think we're okay. bringing a different value proposition yeah. uh, to the table. Uh, in terms of MS, uh, you know, we've, we've been pretty vocal that we would really like to be able to take price in MS if it matters to payers. Mm -hmm. There's only so much we can do um, on price. If, if the payers say, I don't want you to give me a lower price, I only want a discount or a rebate, uh, we can't change the world ourselves. Um, so as much as we'd like to come in with a lower price, and we, will, we, we are certainly out there trying to negotiate um, deals with lower prices, um, if, if not, you know, we'll, we'll be looking, you know, at the prices of, of some of these other agents. Um, I think our expectation is that by the time we launch Ocrevus, we'll be somewhere between 75 and 80,000 per year. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause Simta is, I think launched at 95,000. I'm sure they're going to be growing that price as well. Uh, so again, our, our, our hope is to be, to come in at a discount to, to Ocrevus, uh, the, the level of discount will be contingent upon whether the payers see value in our in our bringing a lower priced product to market. Right. If they yeah. do, we'll get more aggressive on it. If not, I still think we want to come in at a discount, mm -hmm. um, but uh, that will be moderated by or by what's what value we get for that. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, having to deal with payers is like kind of the the elephant in the room, right? To try and manage that as best as possible. One thing that came up on the call was that uh, there's interest in moving forward with the regulatory filing in Europe. And I think so you may have mentioned that MS is going to be the first indication. Do you have a timeline on when that might be submitted? Yeah, I think uh, the team is targeting getting that done maybe by uh, 1Q, maybe 2Q, early 2Q next year. Okay. Um, so. And then there's also an interest in, in CLL potentially eventually um, in Europe. Yeah, we're definitely interested. I think we want to get, um, right now, film strategies, get settled in with, with MS, uh, and then get the CLL to, to come out on top of that. All right, that's great. And so that's pretty much everything I wanted to cover in terms of the commercial stuff, but I did want to touch on some of the upcoming pipeline um, catalysts or things that we can look forward to. And the one program that I'm super excited about is the U2 plus VEN program. And uh, I think you guys mentioned that you're starting to enroll for the phase three. So that's super exciting, but we are going to be expecting some uh, data for the phase two probably in next year. Could you expand on, on some of that? Yeah, so uh, the U2 program plus VEN is, is super important to us. We're excited about it. We think it's a real uh, important growth strategy. You know, for, for U2 alone, we talk about, you know, 10 to 20% of new starts as U2, which would be a mm. uh, really great outcome for the company that's you know, somewhere between 10 and 20%, we would hit a billion plus in sales for, for U2. But U2 plus VIN, if that becomes a standard of care in frontline or second line uh, across both the academic and community settings, then that could really enhance uh, the potential yeah. for, for U2. So that program, just to now to your, to your, to your question, 
the program has uh, has basically three parts, right? We had a U2 plus Ven phase one. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a U2 plus Ven phase two, which is called Ultra V, mm -hmm. and then Ultra V converted, as you noted, to uh, Ultra V phase three. Okay. The phase one enrolled about 40 to 50 patients, of which we've reported on about 25 of those patients with pretty, you know, excellent data in our opinion. Uh, I think it's some of the best MRD, undetectable MRD rates that have ever ever been reported in CLL. So uh, that data is available, uh, mm -hmm. but the anticipation is that we'll update that data during this fall, during the conferences. Mm -hmm. So that's step one. Then the Ultra V phase two portion, uh, those patients finished enrollment uh, in the first quarter of this year. So they'll finish their 12 months in the first quarter of next year. And so the hope and goal is that we present that data at either either ASCO, EHA, Lugano, or all three. Um, ideally, we could do it at all three. Why not? Yeah. Um, and so that that's where we are with that. And then, as you mentioned, we're enrolling into the phase three, and hopefully that will uh, enroll quickly and we can get that data out you know, as soon as possible. It's mm -hmm. gonna be, that's going to be several years long. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, that is a pretty exciting program. And, and you guys just have so much going on. So the BTK inhibitor, yeah, you guys recently presented data on that. Um, I think other things that we should be looking forward to, though, the TG1801, the CD19, CD47 by specific um, data, you know, maybe the end of this year, maybe early 2022. Same with Costabellamab, TG1501. Uh, these are different programs, but I'm just, uh, yeah, these are going to, we might see some more data on these early next year. Yeah, so the 1701, we, we've been updating periodically and we'll continue to do so. We're, we're pretty excited about that program. Molecule is uh, showing a really nice profile mm -hmm. and, and we're deliberately designing it to try to take advantage of, of the profile and really, uh, you know, try to dial out as much if, you know, as possible of, of any BTK related toxicities. Mm -hmm. So, so far it, it looks quite, quite good, uh, both alone and in combination with U2, uh, we're seeing great reactions to, to the drug. So we're going to continue to push forward there. Uh, with 1801, our CD47, CD19 by specific, it's by far the most exciting scientifically mm -hmm. in the pipeline. Um, so we're, we're, we're working on it. We're, we're still trying to figure out the right dosing for that, that molecule. And then we're also working on combination dosing right now. Okay. So it's still in the earlier stages. Uh, there's a possibility we can get some data out later this year, but more likely, my guess is it's it's data next year. And similarly, 1501 has been interesting, which is um, our PDL1. Yeah. For the most part, PDL1s outside of um, a very rare diffuse large B cell and Hodgkin's disease have really been less explored mm. in, uh, in B cell malignancies. Mm. And so we think that there's some really interesting possibilities for combinations across other disease types. Um, but, you know, it is, it is interesting. It's, it does not gather the excitement of the community. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a little bit disappointing from that standpoint. I think people should be more excited to give it a try. Mm -hmm. um, you know, common PDL1 in solid tumors uh, didn't have much success until you put it in combination. Right. Uh, and I think people have sort of pushed aside PDL1s uh, in liquid tumors because of because of the, the lower rates of single agent activity. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, we're, we're grinding through it and mm -hmm. hopefully we'll get enough patients on. We'll start to get people excited. We do have this really uh, exciting idea to put, you know, lubituximab with 
our CD47, CD19, hmm. with our PDL1 as a triple oh, immunotherapy, wow. hmm. and we're working toward that. We're we're going to get there, mm-hmm. whether it's you know uh, later this year, into next year. I'd be yeah. shocked if by by sometime toward the middle of next year we're we're not testing that triple therapy. Hmm. Uh, so. You know, we like having lots of options on the table. Mm-hmm. We've got lots of ways in which we can find our drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you don't know for sure which one is going to come up with the, the best outcome. We've, we've done some safe things to get started. Yeah. You know, Uconic is, is a straightforward. U2 is relatively straightforward. U2 Ven is straightforward. Um, yeah. But we've got some ideas in the background. We'll take a little more risk. Uh, and maybe, you know, that triple immunotherapy could be quite interesting at some point. Yeah, and with the, the safety as it is, it seems like it's it's an easy path forward to kind of try something in, in those kinds of combinations to see if it works better than um, as a some kind of mono or dual therapy. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate your time today, Mike. Is there uh, anything we didn't cover that you wanted to get into before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think we covered everything. Yeah, yeah. okay. That's great. Thanks, awesome. thanks for having me today. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, and with being so forthright in your answers. So everybody, check out TG Therapeutics, the earnings call, all the information is on their website, so check that out. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap it up. But thanks again, Mike, for joining me, and we'll see everybody next time.